Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 197th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Ashby Daniels. Ashby is a financial advisor with Shorebridge Wealth Management, a hybrid advisory firm based in Pittsburgh, where he personally oversees $38 million in assets under management for 43 retired clients. What's unique about Ashby, though, is the way he launched his current practice, breaking away from a major broker-dealer after nearly 10 years in the business in the face of a non-compete and non-solicit agreement, and the path that he built for himself at Shorebridge to give himself enough runway to make the transition without putting his family's financial situation at risk. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Ashby negotiated and structured his unique compensation agreement with Shorebridge to handle the first two years of relaunching from scratch, how he navigated the non-compete and non-solicit agreement to eventually win back at least a subset of his prior clients, how the transition and leaving most of his clients behind allowed Ashby to begin to focus on bringing in the right clients, and the way his business has evolved deeper and deeper into a niche with retirees in the years since. We also talk about how Ashley Ashby has built his current marketing funnel through blogging, or what he calls the introvert's dream to marketing, the way he initially started his blog anonymously just to see if he could do it and build a readership, how Ashby's blog eventually helped his former clients find their way back to him, why blogging can theoretically attract clients from anywhere in the country, but Ashby is using it specifically to grow his local clientele online, and the reason Ashby has now started launching a series of short paperback books for his retiree niche, leveraging his blog articles. And be starting to listen to the end, where Ashby shares how he manages his own time as an independent advisor, the way he splits his time from mornings to work in the business, meetings with clients and handling internal business tasks, and the afternoons to work on the business, including blogging and his other marketing efforts. How the book Essentialism changed Ashby's own personal time management process, the daily productivity sheet that he uses now for himself to ensure he always spends at least some time on tasks that will, quote, move the needle for the business, and how Ashby implemented a meeting surge approach to further focus his time and create more flexibility for the rest of the year to grow the business. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Ashby Daniels. Welcome, Ashby Daniels, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Michael. I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm really looking forward to today's discussion and, and this path I think that you've you've navigated for your own career, having hit what I think is a a crossroads that a lot of advisors hit and and some I, I think really never managed to 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 work through and get over the the way that you did, which is this this challenge of what happens when you start in the industry and and you go out there and you get some clients and 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 God bless it actually works. You get enough clients, you survive, you build a practice you get your income up there to a decent level and you realize like the firm I'm at may not be the firm I want to be at for the rest of my career. <laughs> and now you're like seven to 10 years into building your career, building your client base, which depending on the firm, you may not be able to take with you, right? Non-competes or firms that aren't in protocol or, or a lot of other restrictions. 
and and you get to this like okay i got a lot of career left in front of me but i've worked so hard to get here i don't know if i want to necessarily start over again and you have to figure out like what what do you do do you stay at the firm you're maybe not thrilled to be at for the rest of your career because you don't want to start over again or or can you actually take this giant leap and say if I have to, I'm going to start over from scratch and just build it bigger and better and faster the second time. And I know you, you ultimately made, you made that leap and made that tra- uh, transition. So I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited and fascinated to talk about like how you decide to make that leap, like what gets you there. And so many people I see just aren't comfortable making that jump that you made. What is it that gets to the point of saying, even if I have to start over, I'm I'm just going to build it better and faster the second time. Let's go. Well, so it's funny that you start there because it all it always starts with a question, I think, for a lot of people. And for me, at least somewhere, I can't remember exactly when this was. I mean, it wasn't a, a monumental moment, but I, I was driving down the road and I heard Morgan Housel on a podcast. And this is about the time he left uh, Motley Fool. And I'm sure I'll butcher what he said in in his exact verbiage, but it went something to the effect of, if this is the only company I ever work for, is it possible that I'll regret that decision? And frankly, for me, that's what I think kicked off the idea of, do I stay where I am forever and build just a great business, but never really own a business? Or do I try to start over? And that was a Really difficult decision, but one I'm really glad. I, ultimately, one I'm really glad I ended up making. And and so was that the way you framed it? Like, was that the driver for you between working in a large firm environment and and making this transition to to start over and go out on your own? This kind of I can build a great practice where I work with clients and and make some good income but I won't get to build a business I own and control the way I do if I go out. Like, was that, was that the, the transition point or the, the key factor that made the shift for you is like, I want to build a thing I can, I feel like I can own. I think the, the control and ownership was actually less of it. I mean, that guided where I ended up going, but that was less of the incentive, if you will, to get out. What, what ended up causing me to consider alternatives is I really wanted control over creativity and be able to, like as an example, write a blog, write a book, do other things that I knew were not going to be possible where I was. And for me, uh, <laughs> this is a story we can dive into, but I even started an anonymous blog at one point to see, could I even create some semblance of a following without my name attached to it? So that was part of my exploratory process. So it was more the creativity than it was the ownership, even though the ownership I have found, I'm really glad I did what I did and how I did it. But it was it was certainly more being able to do the things I wanted to do. So can you tell us a little bit about like wh- where the firm was that you started? I mean, where where did you begin? What were you building there that ultimately then came to this shift later? Just so Just so people have context of... When we talk about this transition, you know, we'll talk a lot about where you're transitioning to, but where were you transitioning from? Absolutely. I started with a nationwide firm. This is in 2008, seemingly when every advisor on your podcast started in the DC metro area. The primary focus of the firm was military and federal employees, which I loved. I, mean, I came from, you know, there's a lot of military in my family. So it was a, it was a great place to be. And, and I say all this 
with the caveat that I loved where I was. It was a great place to start. I have nothing but good things to say about them. But in any case, kind of coming back to the beginning, being in the D.C. area, federal employees, given that that was a firm focus, seemed to be just a really great place to start. So one of the things I did was immediately started educating myself. And I read the entirety of the Federal Employees Handbook. Doesn't that sound fun? As I was reading that, I started to think of ways I could kind of market my expertise around federal benefits. And I knew that there were a few websites that catered to federal employees in terms of providing information. So I started writing for those publications. And I really almost immediately started getting calls from both individual potential clients as well as HR professionals of various agencies to start doing federal benefits presentations. I was like, well, I've really hit something here. And in addition to that, I mean, I also warm called, you know, various HR professionals in, in those agencies by sending them the articles I was writing. So I was following exactly what I've ended up doing, but almost 10 years later. And then in 2011, my wife and I moved to Pittsburgh to take over an office. And it was an office that had, let's say, north of 500 clients. I can't remember exactly, but it was a lot of clients. And it was a sole office. And the reason I ended up taking over it is because the gentleman who was running the office passed away unexpectedly. So they needed somebody to backfill. My wife and I were willing to move. And so we did. So, Oh, man. So like, I, I'm just sort of envisioning like one of the like the long-term legacy folks in our business, one of those types that just meets everyone, knows everyone, does business with everyone, accumulates literally hundreds and hundreds of clients, and then suddenly passes away. And there's just hundreds of clients that suddenly need to be serviced and need to be called upon because the original person isn't there anymore, but there's a lot of goodwill. Well, there's there's certainly some truth to that, but it's also that the company that I was with Nobody owns the client. So when a client would move, it would move into the local office. So if, if somebody moved to Western Pennsylvania, even if they had no relationship with the advisor in Western Pennsylvania, they became a client of that Western Pennsylvania office. So, so that, that office ended up with 500 plus clients. And I was driving, I was drowning in appointments, phone calls, trying to keep up in general. I mean, I, I remember that first year I drove almost 40,000 miles and I was working ridiculous hours. It was it was crazy, but it, it ended up being a great move. So I'm glad, really glad I did it. But boy, it was it was a struggle for a while. All right. So you are. So this was just like you had to call on to just get up to speed with all whatever, like 500 ish clients. So it was just like appointment, 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 call, 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 drive out to them, whatever you can do. You just the firm was like you got to get in front of all these people and see what they need and retain them and keep them on board. So you were all hands to do that. Almost exactly. And it was me and one single assistant. And we made it happen, though. I mean, the office wasn't abundantly profitable, but it was a really good opportunity for, you know, those orphan style accounts that so many people are familiar with. And I really did what I could to make the absolute most of that opportunity. And it, it was a really good opportunity also in the sense that it allowed me, I, I am the type of person who likes to learn by jumping in the deep end of the pool. And that well, was, that's certainly a good opportunity for it. Yeah, I, mean, I learned I had to figure out how to put processes in place. I had to figure out how to do how to manage, you know, that that many accounts. I tried to find who who the real players were in terms of good clients out of that out of those 500, you know, client families. So it was it was a lot a lot of, for a couple of years. I mean, I probably worked from, you know, 7 in the morning till, you know, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. Every every day for a long time, and it was 
but it was, like I said, a really great opportunity and it ended up working out wonderfully. So I'm, I'm really thankful that, that, that frankly, that they took the risk on me to, to give me a shot. And so, and so the, just the appeal for you and your wife at the end of the day was like, Hey, you got to relocate and deal with this, but just there's hundreds of clients you get to call on and work with. Don't necessarily have to go business, develop them and find new folks. Like just, we got a big base of clients. You just have to be willing to decide to to uproot yourselves and move there, uh, even if that wasn't necessarily where you'd been planning to be. Absolutely, and and there was just a tremendous opportunity because the guy that the guy that you know unfortunately passed away hadn't really done a ton of planning. So you know, I am a type of advisor who leads with planning, and so for a lot of these clients, they hadn't had any real planning in a lot of years. So just the fact that I was coming in, building financial plans, doing they may not have experienced that for quite some time. So all of a sudden I become, in a lot of cases, and you know, the best advisor they've had in years, if not ever, because I was willing to put in the work and effort to do, you know, obviously that's not a testimonial to myself, but that's what that's what I was hearing because they hadn't had that experience in quite some time. Because the like the clients are as you said, not the clients of the advisor, it's the clients of the firm, just they're they're sort of serviced by the advisor who is there locally, I guess that means like you didn't necessarily have to buy into this practice or book of clients the way that some advisors might have to if they're taking over or successoring for an advisor who passed away. Like you just, you know, if you get the nod from the firm to say Ashby's now the guy in Pittsburgh, like you're the guy. That's that's exactly right. So that was the benefit of working for a, a company like that. So, so working for a company like that doesn't come without its benefits. And that benefit was that I didn't have to buy into that business. I just went up, started servicing it, and then s- tried to see what I could make of it. And like I said, it was a, it was a really great opportunity. So it ended up working out great for me, <laughs> even if it took a lot of hours to do it. So I, I am wondering, just like, how do you, how do you tame and get control when you're when you go into a environment like that. I mean, I get sort of stage one triage, just you got to try to outreach to everyone and just talk to them, find out what's going on. Is there anything I can do for you or solve for you? Right? Like there's sort of an initial pass. Then what? I mean, were you envisioning like, I'm going to serve all these 500 clients. I got to go get more advisors so we can serve these 500 clients. I'm just going to find like, you know, the top 250 of them and focus in there going forward or a hundred of them. Like, did, did you have a plan about what you were going to do to to shape and manage that going forward beyond just the initial the initial dive of I got to you know, drive forty thousand miles and work twelve hours a day just to make the initial outreach to all of them because I've been dropped into this book. There was no real plan. <laughs> In fact, that there was an opportunity. We just went for it. <laughs> pretty much. But what ended up happening was, and the reason I'm so thankful that it all happened is. So that first year when I drove about 40,000 miles, I was like, I can't do this another year. This is just not going to work. Just not sustainable. My wife and I were talking about having kids and I was just like, this is not going to be, this is not going to work for me in the long run. So one of the things I did, which still is with me today is in lieu of getting the appointment and driving to every person who I hadn't met before, I started doing phone call, initial phone conversations, which that's how my prospecting system works today which is, you know, so you get a lead from the, you know, from, from my blog and then they schedule an initial phone call. That is the exact same process that I followed going, except for working with an existing book. So it really became, there was no plan. And then I just tried to figure out how to manage the chaos. 
And, and then once I figured out who the, you know, let's just say who the best hundred client families were in terms of either quality of relationship, their feeling towards the company, their potential for, you know, financial opportunities. Those were the people I tended to focus in on. And then those became, I, I then transitioned those clients into an ongoing service model that I created, which was, you know, not, not all that different from anybody else, which is just, I meet with them twice a year and, you know, anything they needed in the interim. And so I just tried to manage the best relationships in that way. And then I just tried to keep my head above water with anything else that came down the pipe. So interesting. So you, you did ultimately, it sounds like get to this point of saying like, I can't do everything for all 500. I'm going to try to find my top hundred that are, that I can do stuff with on an ongoing basis that, you know, economically I can charge what I need to charge to get there. We're going to do an ongoing service model for them. And that's where I'm going to focus that, I guess, roughly top hundred out of the 500 to build a business around. Absolutely. And then I hired another advisor and I was able to offload some of that client work to, you know, the, the other kind of the other orphan accounts, if you will, that I hadn't developed a relationship with. I said, look, here's, you're an advisor starting out. Here's a way in which you can kind of get a head start, at least get some experience under your belt, call in some people. And so I was able to transition a lot of that out and then kept serving you know, the, the clients who I, who I was really excited to serve. Because I was going to say, I know the challenge in lots of you know, na- national firms with the kind of structure that you're describing is like, you know, the, the good news is it's the client of the firm. If they say you're the local advisor, like you get that client. You, as you said, you didn't have to buy in, just you know, service the client and do the business and you can get compensated for it and the firm assigns it to you. The bad news is like, if the firm assigns you a client, they expect you to do something for them. Like for a lot of firms like that, you don't really get the option of saying like, yeah, I've decided I just really don't want to work with that person. Firms like, no, 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 they're a client of the firm. You, you, you need to work with them and do something. So, so like, and so the, I guess then the plan that emerged from it was I'm going to focus myself into the top hundred or so, and then I'm going to try to hire another advisor and that person can deal with the bulk of the other 400 that aren't really a good fit for me anyways, but we have to service as an office. So I did do that, but I didn't, I didn't transfer out quite the 400. I, I ended up retaining a number of those because I was tasked also with, they wanted me to get the office to three advisors. So I had to hang on to some of those accounts so that when I hired a third advisor, they would also have a runway. And, and that's pretty much what happened. So I ended up hiring two advisors in my time there, was able to kind of give them some, some you know, runway. And so, so you started shaping that direction. It sounds like had a had a, a pretty good opportunity all around of just got a big base of clients, did the move, figured out how to prioritize them, got, you know, got some on board with you, transitioned some to second advisor and then third advisor, which I'd imagine just kind of made your life feel a little better and then a little better as you got got excess clients offloaded and were able to focus in on the ones that you wanted to serve that could pay you well to do the work that you wanted to be doing and planning for them. Absolutely. Okay. So, so then what, what changed? Cause you're, you're not still there. <laughs> so, you know, coming back to that question I started with about Morgan, that was about the same time that I really started thinking about my future at that point. It was around that time I discovered the likes of Josh Brown you know, and a variety of other bloggers is, that caused me to really start thinking outside the box. And in my firm, as I think a lot of these kind of big box financial services firms are, 
we were pretty insulated or ignorant to what happened outside of the company and in the broader industry in general. But, you know, reading, say, Josh's blog and a variety of your blog and a variety of others, my eyes were kind of opened to what happened outside of the firm. So, you know, that coupled with kind of remembering back to my time writing for federal employees, I really wanted to try my hand at blogging and tried every which way I could to try to encourage my company to let me do it. And there was just no way they were going to allow it. So first thing I did was I tried to prove to myself that I could do it. And so I started in a non and to see if I would even enjoy it actually. So I started in an anonymous financial blog where my name was nowhere on it, but I wanted to write financial stuff just to see if I could get some level of following. And I did, and it worked. And so I was like, all right, so I know I can do this, but that also accelerated my desire to leave, but I still wasn't sure when or how I'd go about it. Cause at this point, you know, we have our third kid or excuse me, our second kid is here. This was in 2016. So, so we had two, two boys and I was like, all right, well, how do I, how do I make this exit? And I really wasn't sure, but I just started looking around. So my initial thought was, all right, well, after educating myself, and this is I'm kind of condensing a couple years span into, you know, a short story, but my initial thought was I, I wanted to go to a fee only firm, but I, I never could find one that was right. So I kept exploring and I was really on no timetable. I was making great money, had great clients. So I was really wasn't outside of being frustrated. I really wasn't in a rush to do anything, at least not to that point. And then I even considered starting my own my own firm. I looked into, you know, XY Planning Network, had some calls with your team there, which was, you know, an amazing organization, by the way. But it was going to be a risk that I wasn't willing to take at the time. I was my family's sole income. I, you know, I, although I am and always will be and always have been an advisor who followed my own advice, we had saved up enough money to give it a shot to start my own. But I thought if I could get creative, there might be a win-win scenario for myself and, a, and another good firm. And what ended up happening was, I was thrown a bit of a curveball when I found out that my old company was going to be making some changes at the firm that I vehemently disagreed with. And I was going to end up having to kind of, I was going to be the one left holding the ball, telling clients about what this change was. And I was just like, I just, I just disagree. So my options were not good. Uh, so was this around like products they were going to be using or structures they were going to be? It was a fee, uh, it was a fee right. increase. It was a fee increase on investment accounts, which I had been arguing. Kind of, I was. On, I don't want to say I was on a feedback committee. There was no formal committee, but I was close with a lot of the people in the investment management team, and I had been advocating for lowering fees. And then I get a note that says, "Oh, we're increasing fees." And I was like, "I just, I just can't be here to explain this to clients. Like, it's just not. I, I. It's against. It's principle." And and, and just because you you felt like they were raising it above a reasonable going rate was, or is, I mean, just, you know, there are businesses that find they need to raise fees from, from time to time. Like what, what was it that felt so off to you? Just, you didn't feel like it was a market rate or that there was some other issue with the, with the fee structure. So the combination of fees between a lot, the, the firm I was at advocated for a lot of active management, which I'm not I, to each their own. I, I don't really care. I, as I'm sure we'll discuss at some point, you know, I, that's not a, that's not a huge deal, but costs are a huge deal. So between the active management fees of the funds that we held within our, you know, our managed account program, plus the fee that was the managed account program fee was, you know, somewhere around 
between 1.6 and 2%, depending on which which style account it was and the funds that it held and so forth. And I was just like, I just didn't, I, would, I thought that was too high cumulatively. So when I got the notice that the fees were going to be increasing, which affected, because I had a lot of clients who were grandfathered in under a lower fee system that were, quote, no longer going to be grandfathered into that lower fee system, it was going to affect about 80% of my clients. And I was like, I just don't want to be the one holding the ball here, trying to explain something that I disagree with. It, like I said, it was it was a principal move. And so that all came out in December of 2017. And so by that point, luckily, I had done a lot of research and I was able to to be gone by, fe- by February of 18. So in a span of, I went from, I'm not sure I'm going to leave. I would like, I'm like exploring ideas to, I have to get out and I was gone. So I, I want to come back to that transition story, but I, I do have a few questions of just this, this anonymous blog thing you built on the side. And like, and as you said, like, I want to see if I could get some following in it and it worked. So can you talk a little bit more about just what, like what you, what you did to get going with a blog at a firm that said you weren't supposed to officially have a blog, so you didn't officially have a blog? Well, I was very cognizant to not share it with anybody who was connected to anything that uh, that might even string back to me. So, because I, I certainly didn't want it to be apparent that it was me, even if I said it wasn't me. So I just really wanted to see, A, did I enjoy writing, you know, a general financial blog rather than say the old federal employee stuff I used to do. So I started this thing, started sharing it around via just sharing it with people who I knew would read it. And I ended up getting email subscribers. I tried to write posts based on SEO. And that was really my first expiration into that. I found that I was getting a little bit of Google traffic, not a lot, not Kitsis-like, but I didn't really need a lot. I mean, it was probably going to be something that even if I got an ounce of success, I said, all right, this this can work. <laughs> probably because I was just so eager to do it anyway. And and just what did you like? What did you do? I mean, you 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 like handy in how to stand up a WordPress blog? Did you go like get some out of the box platform thing? Like, how, just how did you get it stood up? I didn't know anything about WordPress. Now I now I know, I guess, a bit about WordPress, but I, I think I started it on Weebly, if my memory serves me correctly. So it was one of those one of those sites where you just sign up and if you if you keep Weebly on the site, they don't even charge you anything. So I could stand it up for free without a credit card, without anything, and they would allow me to, you know, at least test the theory. Okay. And then and then how did you start? How did you start sh- sharing it? Because like you're trying to do this an- anonymously, like making, were there still people you were willing to email from yourself and just like, hey, don't tell anyone this is me? Or did you like make an anonymous Twitter handle and then start like anonymously tweeting it at people? So how, I, how did I, you, how did you get it out? I created a multiple anonymous approach. I did send it to a few people who knew, who knew it was me, but I knew would not uh, disclose that it was me. And then they shared it around. And then I also created a couple anonymous email addresses and then would send it to people who I thought it would be relevant to who are, you know, say bigger names in our industry. And then next thing you know, they would share a couple. And then I would get some email subscribers. And then it just kind of took off on its own. So I, yeah, there's, in this day and age, there's still a lot of, you know, really good anonymous bloggers. And so I think that people did not find that to be weird. Because there are some really, really quality anonymous bloggers. And I was like, well, 
I think I can do that. And so I did. And, and I guess the, uh, sort of the, like from the, from the actual legal compliance perspective, like you're not soliciting clients because they don't know who you are and they couldn't work with you if they wanted to, because they don't know who you are. It's technically not regulated advertising at that point because you're, you're not actually advertising yourself and soliciting business because your name's not there and your firm name's not there. And you know, you're not soliciting clients through it. No, exactly. It had no connection to me, my business whatsoever. I didn't have to worry about, you know, I didn't have to worry about that because I wasn't trying to market myself. It was just, it was just a test to see if I could do it. And so as you were building an email list, like that was just to be able to send out more blog posts and see if more people show up. That's exactly right. And, and what did you use to build the email list? Is that like, does Weebly have that function feature built in? They had their own tools. So it, they, I could do everything without having to... One of the critical points for me was not having to put in any personal identifiable information in order to do it. And so I could use... Most of those sites, whether it's Weebly or you know a variety of others, I think will allow you to just start these things as long as you don't take their branding off, that they'll give you the stuff because they want more people to get there. They want more people to use their stuff. So I didn't have to, I didn't have to use any of that. that was all, it was all free and that was that. And, and what kind of stuff did you write? I wrote a lot of the same stuff I write now. I mean, I've never reposted any of the stuff I wrote before and that blog is long since gone, but it was, I wrote about principles. I wrote about investments. I wrote about, you know, transparency. I wrote, I wrote about the things that I was feeling at the time regarding, you know, financial services. And I, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of like what I write like now, except for I would invariably cringe at how I wrote and what I wrote then. And so it sounds like people started showing up that you were you were feeling emboldened, like, well, well, doggone it, I guess this works. What kind of numbers were you were you getting? Because I think there's always some questions of just what are I don't know, what are realistic expectations as you get started of of who might show up and what you can do. Like what what sort of traction you were were you getting at the time that felt good to you at the time enough to say, I think I can do this? It probably really, you know, I honestly don't really recall, but it probably wasn't anything more than a couple hundred. I I really didn't, I would say on a monthly basis, I really didn't need a lot of confidence to say, like, I felt like even if in six months I could get to, all right, I have a couple hundred people who come monthly, then I would have viewed that as a tremendous success because it was, it was just testing a theory. I wasn't really trying to create an anonymous blog that was then going to stand forever. I mean, the ultimate goal was to, I think at the time, leave and just see, all right, if I started a blog, could I do it with my real name? Could I do it with, you know, like I said, it was just to test the theory. So I wasn't necessarily concerned about, did it get 10,000 hits? I just wanted to know, could it be done? And could I do it? And would I enjoy it? And, and, and I guess in a very practical sense, just got to start practicing writing blog posts and seeing like, can I, can I write things, can I write things people read? And do I actually can I get to the point where I enjoy the writing process enough to want to keep doing this? Exactly. hundred percent. Okay. So you're now coming up to this point where you're going to leave, right? They, they do the fee change and you're not, you don't want to have to break the news to 80 plus percent of clients. They no longer get grandfathered under a lower fee structure. So you're deciding where to go. You, you had said like you initially wanted to go to a fee only firm, but then you couldn't find one that was the right fit. So I'm I'm wondering both like what was leading you in the direction of a fee only firm having you know been at one that wasn't 
And then what was it you were looking for that made all these firms you were talking to the wrong fit? There was a, the main feeling I got was that I was just going to be a cog in the wheel. And I really didn't want to be a cog in the wheel. I wanted to have a voice. And so working with a firm, and I don't want to say I want to be the big brand name. I don't care about being the firm principal. I don't care about really any of that. I just wanted to be able to have a voice. And I felt like at these other firms, I that wasn't going to be what happened. And so it was more- Because they were, they were bigger, more established firms. Like, good news, we have infrastructure, bad news, like- you will be an employee here and you will do the things that the firm does. And, and that sort of, that sort of feeling like nice. If you want a firm that's already got some of that stuff figured out, not, not so nice if you're trying to be a little more creative. And I also didn't want to work with somebody else's clients. I wanted to work with my own clients. I wanted to have my own business. At this point, I had figured that out that I really wanted that having my own business because I didn't want to go old firm 2.0. I wanted to have a clean slate and it work with my own clients and my clients only and build a practice, build a business that I would be really pleased with in the long run. I didn't want to have to do, I didn't want to have to start somewhere, realize, okay, this isn't the right fit either. And then go somewhere else. That was really important to me. So, so what, like, what were the things on, on your list? Like you'd sort of said, I, I, you didn't want to go out and build from scratch, like you talk to XYPN, didn't want to build a firm from scratch, but didn't want to be a large in a larger firm where you're kind of quote, just, just a cog in the wheel. Like what, what were you looking for? Like, what were the things that you were trying to check the boxes for of, if I'm going to join the right firm, it needs to be able to do these things. So I actually did want to start my own firm. But I didn't want to accept the risk associated with starting a new firm. I mean, being the sole income and having two young children, I really, you know, one of the things that was super important to me was finding a way to kind of de-risk my exit because I had a non-compete and a non-solicit that I was not willing to compromise. And I wanted to create kind of a low-risk proposition for me and also a low-risk proposition for whatever firm I decided to join. So that's the only reason I didn't want to start my own is not because I didn't want to start my own, just because I didn't want the risk associated with it, having that non-compete, non-solicit. And I didn't know how it would go. Honestly, I was, it was going to be a mystery of does this work out or doesn't it? Be, because you knew going into this, like, if I leave, I will have to start, I will have to start over. Correct. And so I, like I said, this, the, when I left, having that non-compete, non-solicit, I knew there were other advisors who even I was close with who had left. And I knew that they had maybe not followed the agreement quite to the letter. Well, for me, my agreement that I had signed with my old firm was, it was a moral obligation. I had signed it. That's how I grew up. You know, I signed the agreement. I followed the agreement. It's as simple as that. So what I was trying to do really in terms of finding a a firm instead of starting over totally on my own, say with XY or somebody was I didn't, you know, James Clear talks about, you know, removing incentives if when the need arises. So one thing I was adamant about doing was not violating my non-compete and non-solicit. So if I could be a little bit more creative and create a scenario where I wouldn't even be tempted to violate my non-solicit, then I knew that everything would be okay. 
if I had, say, a couple year runway where I could get my business up and going, then I felt like I could be successful if I did it that way. And and I guess just to clarify, like the non-compete, non-solicit, it sounds like it wasn't completely banning you from doing anything in the industry as a non-compete because then you, then you couldn't switch and go anywhere. The The scope of it was was just like you cannot you cannot try to compete directly for and solicit the clients that you had at the old firm. So the the non-compete was I couldn't be within a I couldn't have an office within a mile of their office. The non-solicit was I could not reach out to any of my existing clients. Period. It didn't mean I couldn't work with them. I couldn't reach out. So if they reached out to me and opened up the conversation, I was even very serious and transparent about that when I did get calls. It says, look, I, I cannot I cannot basically solicit your business. And so I was very clear about that throughout because I wanted I had an obligation to fulfill that non-solicit. And that was what that's what it said. So I couldn't it wasn't that I couldn't work with people. It's that I could not actively solicit them. I couldn't go after them. They had to come to me if they came. Okay. So so the good news, I guess, at least like the non-compete end of just don't be within a mile of their office was probably pr- pretty, pretty, man- pretty manageable. Like, you know, metropolitan areas are pretty big and you can work virtually anyway. So, uh, so it sounds like in practice, like the non-compete was just, you know, don't, don't screw up the office address and check a map before you go wherever you're going to go and stand up, whatever you're going to stand up. The real driver was just, there's a non-solicit that says you cannot solicit any of your former clients. And so you got to be prepared that if you change, you're going to be starting over from zero because you can't go back and solicit any of them. And you didn't want to be in a financial position that would make you desperate and feel tempted to go back and solicit them, which is what happens if you take the leap and don't have enough of a runway for yourself. 100%. And I, I really was adamant about trying to figure out a way that I could eliminate that incentive to myself so that I, w- I wouldn't even be tempted to violate that agreement. And so the creative solution was to organize for me a temporary salary arrangement for two years that covered most, but not all of my household living expenses. This way, kind of we, we me being the advisor in the firm, which is Shorebridge Wealth Management in Pittsburgh, basically would both have some skin in the game. So if my portion of billings, though, exceeded my salary, then I would roll right over to my billings. If they didn't, then kind of the way I looked at it is I had a two-year income floor. So I felt confident that if I could build my business back over that time to a point of sustainability, I really felt that I could do it. And if I had just two years, and if I didn't, I figured by that point, I'd have whatever I have at that point, and then I still have a floor. So it was. It was really just a way to creatively create an exit plan where it didn't require me either even in temptation to violate the agreements that I had signed, but allowed me to get out and start over in a less risk way than if I just started on my own, started my own firm. So, so essentially you went to the firm and said like, I want X dollars as a, as a salary for two years. And hey, can I ask, like, what what number did you ask for that you got someone to bite off on and say yes to? So I asked for $100,000 a year for okay. two, for a span of two years. And I said, look, and I even offered, the, the firm principal was generous and not, I wouldn't have mattered at this point anyway, but I even said, look, 
even if I only get to, you know, X number, my agreement to you is even personally is that I will stay at your firm until you recoup your investment in me. And so it was a way to kind of put my feet to the fire as well. But, you know, $100,000 salary is, was enough to get me off the ground. And I said, look, you're limited to two years. You cannot invest in me any more than that. And, you know, beyond that, I, I roll over to my billings. Or if I cross that threshold before the two years is up, then I transfer over to that anyway. So I had some, we all had some skin in the game and I, I felt obligated to the firm that if I didn't make my gate in terms of if I didn't, you know, I wouldn't leave at two years, even if I wasn't where I wanted to be. So it was just a, I mean, it was a formalized agreement. You know, I, and one of the other conditions to come back to your previous question is what were my conditions? One was that I would own my clients. So, you know, if I decided to ever leave here that I owned my clients, but, you know, I was really, really lucky to find a firm that could see you know, the potential in me that could see that, you know, hey, I'm a straight shooter and was willing to take that risk. So, you know, it's it, it ended up being a really good idea, really good and a really good partnership. So so the essence of it is like, you're going to pay me $100,000 a year as a minimum guarantee. To the extent I start getting clients and generating any revenue, like, I don't get that because you're already paying me $100,000. Like, you get all that. Presumably, if I can get to $100,000 of client revenue pretty quickly, you're now covering my salary. Once I'm bringing in revenue that's higher than 100, then I want to participate in it because I've now outgrown my base. But until I get to that point, in essence, like you give me you give me $100,000 salary, but you keep 100% of the revenue that I'm generating until I've made it back for you. So they keep 100% of the revenue up until I was at 50% of that, because that's what our operating agreement is with advisors in our firm at current is that you know you get you get 50% of your billings so in essence you had to get to 200,000 of revenue before before you go back to a normal 50% of payout structure in the first place that's correct and presumably then it's good for them on an ongoing basis cuz as long as you're still there they're continuing to have this business relationship with you where they get 50% of the revenue and you're going out and doing your thing and and so if you stay long enough and grow large enough, they make back whatever the initial years of losses were for them when they were paying you $100,000 salary, but they were taking 50% of zero or five grand or 10 grand when you hardly had any clients so far. Exactly. So it ended up be working out that, you know, I almost made all that up in the first three, four months. So, but I didn't know that would happen. You know, that was the key was I was really looking for a way to de-risk. My wife was already willing to take the risk with me because we were doing really well. And, you know, so the fact that the fact that she was willing to let me go out and try to try to give this another go and create something from scratch, you know, I credit her, you know, immensely for her confidence that I could do it. So I really felt an obligation to make sure that we were going to be okay financially, but at the same time, giving us plenty of upside. And so I, I, like I said, I think it's worked out really, really well. And so just curious, like, were there any other conditions attached to this? You said like, I will own my clients was, was one of them. So, Hey, if this doesn't work out and we part ways, I'm not, I'm not starting over again, again, like I'm clients coming with me this time. If we ever have to leave, were there any other big conditions attached to this or it was just really came down to like, I, I need an income floor to make this transition and participate in your payout. 
and I need to own my own clients. Well, the only other condition was that I could write and I could do other marketing activities that were more outside the box. I mean, our firm really didn't do any out, Shorebridge didn't really do anything outside of the box too much before I showed up. But I think what's happened is as a result of my own efforts, the firm is rethinking how they're marketing themselves. So that was the only other condition was that I could write do other and do other marketing things that were maybe a little bit outside the box. I even had, uh, we, we worked through Raymond James. So I even had calls directly with Raymond James to make sure I could do everything I wanted to do before I would agree that this was the right place. And it turned out they've been great. And I've had, I've had really very little issue. It's been, it's been a good, good partnership. And so how did you, how did you find the firm? Like, how did you find Shorebridge to know, like, this is who, this is who I want to build with. And then these folks will actually cut the deal with me that I want to cut. So I had a friend who worked here, two friends who worked here. We weren't overly close at the time. We were, I, I would say friends, but probably closer to acquaintances. And I had had coffee with one of them one day. And they're like, you have to come talk to, you know, and this was right after I found out about you know, the fee changes. And I was like, I've got to get out. I got to find a place to go quickly. Ordinarily, you know, fast decisions are poor decisions, but it ended up being that I ended up meeting with the firm principal. And I said, look, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it. This is, you know, kind of my solution to get out of here. I presented him with the, they didn't present me with the salary arrangement. I came up with that myself and was just super transparent with them and said, you know, this doesn't cover all my costs because I believe I want I have some I want to have some skin in the game too. I was just really really transparent with what I was trying to accomplish by joining here, and I didn't I did talk with a, a few other firms, but Shorebridge was by far the most agreeable to everything I wanted to do, and and what their expectations were of me, and so it ended up just being a, a really great fit. So I figured that out around middle of January and agreed to agreed to come over at that point. And so talk to us as well about this structure of 50%, uh, you know, like payout and, and revenue share, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, like there are a lot of direct broker dealer relationships that have much higher payouts than that. You also have to do more and responsible for more and you don't get a salary with it. So, you know, trade-offs up and down the spectrum, but how do you, how do you think about something like a 50% what do they do for you for that? How do you compare that to going I know, like direct with Ray J or some other independent broker dealer that, you know, some out there that have 80 or 90% payouts, but then you got to cover more of your own costs. What were the, what were the trade-offs? What does the firm bring? How do you evaluate that payout percentage versus the other options that are out there? Well, the part of that stems from, first of all, our firm is, I kind of call us married singles. We all run our own practice underneath the Shorebridge umbrella. And so we all have, I use staff in the office. I have a marketing budget. I have, so I get 50% of my gross, gross payout, but I also have, you know, I have health insurance. I have a 401k. I have, I have other things that make it the payout higher than 50% in, in total. But then beyond that, I remember back to your episode with uh, Matthew Jarvis, which is Kits seven, I think. Yes. That is a popular episode. (laughs) Heard you say it so many times. I know it, but he said that his firm payout is he gets, he's 50%. So I was like, all right, well, he's a million dollar producer and 50%. I said, 
all right, that sounds pretty fair then. If that's what he's doing as a solo, that's then that doesn't sound like a bad place to be. And that's literally the that's that's the math I did on it. Was just he's he's been a very productive and excellent advisor. So I say if that if that's what he's getting, then then that's probably a pretty good starting place for me. Because part of your vision was like I I want to live this sort of highly efficient solo advisor uh, world. Like I don't necessarily want to build and hire up all this staff. I want to stay focused on me and just have the support around me. So that that sort of model, like they keep 50%, but they deal with all that other stuff. I just get my benefits and my resources and I go do my thing with my clients. Like that was that was appealing as this as part of the structure. Well, part of my philosophy in life in general is, can I do the things that I want to do and only the things that I want to do? I don't- I like that philosophy. <laughs> I don't really want to do that other stuff, at least at this time. You know, I mean, I, certainly that could change, but right now- that seems to be a pretty fair deal. And for everything that they provide to me and where my business is at at current, I, I really have no complaints. So so talk to us about the transition itself. Like, you know, when when it's actually time to to make the leap, you know, how did you like how did you make the leap? How did you resign from the old firm? How did you get started in the new one? You know, you, you mentioned the revenue came back pretty quickly. So I'm, I'm very curious how the revenue came back, but I wanted to start with like, how did you, you know, when you made the decision, like, how did you break the news? How did you do the transition and exit when it was time? So I left, I, you know, I called my immediate supervisor at my old firm and who, this was honestly the hardest part for me because, you know, the guy who was my I guess manager, if you will, at my old firm was and had become an extremely close friend. I mean, he would stay at my house, you know, when he would come to Pittsburgh because he wasn't local to Pittsburgh, but we had gotten so close. He would just stay at my house when he would come to town to see our office. And, you know, he was a a mentor to me in a variety of ways. And I really appreciated him. So telling him that I was leaving was was really a really difficult part. But so our firm had a 30-day kind of blackout period. So with so I left on February second, Groundhog Day, I think. Started up at my new firm on March the fifth. Well, during the month of February, I couldn't do anything. Period. So what so I that did, that was was that like part of the part of the employment contract where you were this like garden leave provision. You have to just you know yeah you can start again as long as it's at least a mile away and don't solicit your clients. Oh, but you just also have to take a complete pause for thirty days. And so I spent that time literally learning how to build a WordPress blog. <laughs> that was the majority of what I did. And obviously I was, you know, getting paperwork together here at the firm, getting my office set up, trying to get myself squared away so that when March 5th would happen that I could, uh, I could get going. Now get going is even a interesting scenario because of course I couldn't solicit anybody. So it was kind of- As I say, like on the one hand, having a 30 day, blackout period when you're transitioning is like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose all this momentum. And I guess the flip side is, well, if you're actually not allowed to bring any clients anyways, then you may as well just use that time to start brainstorming what your brand new future marketing plan is going to be because it's not like you've got anyone else you're allowed to call on yet anyways. And that is exactly what I did. It wasn't like Monday morning on March the 5th, I started ringing the phones. I couldn't do it. It wasn't even allowed. So I spent a lot of time creating you know, content for the blog to get it off the ground so that it had a starting point because I couldn't launch that on until March 5th either because then I would be, quote, in business. 
So I couldn't do that. So I tried to get, you know, enough stuff written on the blog so that it had a starting point so that on March 5th, I could just load that up and get going. And then interestingly, so give it or give or take the first week, first two or three weeks, I started, you know, I would get a call here and a call there from an old client. And I was like, every single one, I was like, thank the Lord. So, so what was happening? Like they, they were somehow looking you up and still trying to figure out where you were and just, I guess, like would Google you and figure out where you were since, you know, fortunately you've got a little bit more of a unique name. There's probably not a lot of Ashby Daniels around Pittsburgh, like you're findable. It was that it was, you know, through, you know, when I, as an example, one of the significant ways was when I changed my LinkedIn profile, I guess apparently I didn't know this at the time, but apparently when you change your LinkedIn profile, where you work, it like gets sent out to everybody that you changed where you work. So I was already connected to a bunch of clients. I mean, just naturally, that's just the way it works. And, you know, I probably got seven to 10 calls from that alone. So when I made the change on my LinkedIn profile, I got a call saying, wait, what happened? And I, and I guess like you're not, you're not soliciting business. You're not asking for business or anything, right? This is a, this is a third party platform that just happens to send out notifications of career changes to people you're connected to. Yeah. I mean, I didn't send anything. It was just, it just happened. And I was like, all right, well, at least that way, you know, so through the use of social media, a couple people would find the blog either through my posting via social media or, you know, through Google searching my name, it had already started. To sh- I mean, Ashby, like you said, is not a common name. So, you know, it, it shows up, it started to show up on Google pretty quickly. If you would Google my name directly, you know, they would also find out when they would call my old firm to talk to me and found that I had left. Well, right. So natural thing. They're like, well, I don't know who this new person is. I liked Ashby. I'm going to find Ashby. Google Ashby Daniels. Like, oh, there he is. Found him. Well, even that, I mean, because I drove all over Western Pennsylvania for so long, every client had my cell phone. So because I would answer calls on the road all the time because I was always on the road. And so, so many clients had my cell phone number already. And so when they would find out I left, I got a call on my cell phone and say, hey, what happened? Please tell me because, you know, please please tell me what's going on. So, so that was, I got an initial flow just of, you know, great clients that followed me over here within three or four months. I had, I already felt really good about where I was at. Can you quantify that for us a little, just like how much, how much business really ended out following you? I guess like how much business was there where you were and how much business managed to follow you in the first few months, just because, you know, they, as you said, like they called the office for the routine call, found out you weren't there, tried to track you down and managed to track you down. Sure. So my my personal practice, not the office, because remember, I offloaded a lot of stuff to other people. But my personal practice, I managed about 80 million total, 60 million in fee based when I left. So within the first four months, I had gotten about 22, I think, of the fee based assets over here. And then currently I'm up to about 38 million in 43 client relationships. So, And how long has it been now since you made the transition? I transitioned in, in March of 18. So, you know, we're two and a half years, give or take. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And so, right, obviously just sort of napkin mathing, like 22 million, a proverbial 1% fee. Like you were, you were actually clearing that 200,000 revenue threshold quite quickly with 
with Shorebridge. I imagine they were, <laughs> they, they took a big sigh of relief very quickly. Like, oh, well, how about that? This worked out. Hooray. I, yeah, I was really close. I mean, I was really close to the 200,000 rolling revenue pretty darn quickly. So, you know, and that speaks to just really serving your clients really well. And were you, I mean, were, were you expecting that much to come over? Or was this just entirely a surprise with this like a hope and we'll see what happens? Like, Well, it, it was certainly a lot of hope because I couldn't do anything to precipitate it. But what I had done before was I, I tr- tried to create a list and said, all right, well, who do I hope will call? Who do I really, really think will call? Who am I sure will call? And I tried to create a list of what that might look like. And I was almost spot on at who came, who would come initially. I mean, I, I there were a couple that stayed that I didn't think would stay. And there were a couple that, that ended up coming that I didn't think would come. But for the most part, my list was pretty accurate. And so... And just that really just drove off of here are the people I think I've got really good relationships with. So when they find out I'm not there, they're probably going to track me down and want to keep working with me. Precisely. And and at that point, you just had to be findable, which between they had your cell phone number, they were connected to you on LinkedIn, or or you're, you simply have a, a, a Googleable name when they wanted to find you, you were very findable. Exactly. So I, I felt an immediate stress relief once I hit you know, within about four months, I, I felt I felt a lot better about life in general. <laughs> and so now that you're sort of underway in this environment with more flexibility, like you'd said earlier, you know, you, you had sort of a couple of these core conditions, like I needed someone to help financially de-risk me. I need to be able to own my own clients. And I want to do this writing blogging thing, like did the anonymous experiment, it worked, made a switch to a firm that was willing to let you do that. So like, are you still doing the blogging stuff? Like, has that actually become a focus channel for you? What's going on with it at this point? It is almost all of my focus outside of serving clients. So my, my blog is the retirement field guide. I'm actually in the process of uh, having professionally built. My site currently looks like an amateur built it. And that's because an amateur did build it. I did. So I'm having one professionally built now. And, you know, at first, you know, it was just a place to get my planning thoughts out. And then, you know, I kind of started writing posts for, they would hopefully work for SEO purposes. And then as my business has grown, you know, I've kind of transitioned away from writing articles for those other purposes. And now I write kind of articles just for the sheer joy of writing them. And so, you know, sometimes I kind of wonder if that's why blogging generally takes three years to get new clients to come, because that's how long it takes you to find your voice. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Interesting. So, so talk to us a little bit more of just like, how has the evolution of the content changed? So now I, you know, I say on my site as an example that the mission of my site is to help 10 million people make better retirement decisions. I mean, I only write with the idea of retirees and pre-retirees in mind, but I still write some informational posts like on IRAs and, you know, general stuff like that. But most of my posts now are what I would term as an optimistic view of what's happening at the moment or how we might think about something that's being talked about in the news with a historical lens. And it's, I, it's always, always, always written in a positive tone. You know, I, I know I said this, but, you know, I, I say on my site that the mission is to help 10 million people make better retirement decisions. So, you know, in many cases to me, I think that making better retirement decisions stems from how they react or don't react to what's going on in the market at any given moment. And I think that retirees and investors in general get so wrapped up in what funds are the best or 
you know, something along those lines, but that likely isn't going to be what deter- what determines whether they make it or don't, in my opinion. It's whether they stay the course through trying times or not. So, you know, the COVID, the COVID market crash is a great example. You know, people who stayed the course, despite how scary it was, have seen it through to the other side. And so as I'm having my website totally redone, you know, the, the tagline of my blog is becoming vitamin C for market weary souls, because I really just don't think there's enough of that out there. And so that's, that's kind of, I love that vitamin C for market weary souls. Like we'll give you a little infusion of the positive uh, vitamins and energy in the midst of everything else out there feeling a little depressing. Exactly. And so, you know, that's, that's the, that's where my blog is going at current. And it's really where I'm finding a ton of joy writing as opposed to, I didn't really enjoy writing all those other things. I mean, I enjoyed writing about my principles and philosophies, but once those are done, you know, those in theory, those don't change a whole lot. But, you know, paying attention to what's going on in the world and helping people take an objective look at what's going on, I think is hopefully super valuable. And if I can help people do that, then I feel like I will have uh, fulfilled my mission in the world. Interesting, interesting. And so talk to us about this from the business perspective like i get the i get the, the like the passion and desire for the writing so are you finding this translates into business or how are you translating this into business sure so as a result of the blog as it started out it was kind of an ideal way for previous clients to find me and so you know, just to see what i was thinking and what i was up to so that that was you know helpful you know in the beginning stages and even continues to be helpful as we speak but most of the people who work with me now as a result of the blog were people who know me in some fashion from around Pittsburgh and have and have, you know, become subscribers to the blog and say, Hey, I just really like you know your perspective on things and I'd like to, you know, kind of explore having a relationship with you. And that's been yeah, that was the first year was probably all previous clients. The second year was people who know me from around the area, but I don't have a formal relationship with yet. And now I'm starting to get initial calls with people who I have no connection with whatsoever outside of them being a reader of the blog. So I'm starting to get those initial calls, but I'd, I guess I'd like them to come a little faster. But, you know, given where my business has gotten to, I'm really less concerned about that at the moment. And I really am writing to hopefully just make a positive, a positive impact. I mean, of course, I would love to have clients come from it, but I think that part of why I'm enjoying it so much now is because I'm writing stuff that I really enjoy writing. I, I'm I'm struck by that evolution that you said. Like the the first year was mostly prior clients reaching out. Like you know they they Google for you, they find you. A few of them call right away. The rest are maybe like oh, I'm going to see what Ashby's up to. Oh, he's got this blog thing. I'll sign up for that. They get the stuff for a while. And they're like, oh, I, I I like this. Like, all right, I'm going to follow up with Ashby. So so they come back to you. I'm struck. The second year you said like it's it's people you knew around town who signed up for the blog. So I guess this is sort of like a, a drip marketing strategy in essence. Like you, you meet them offline, but they're not necessarily ready to do business yet. So they sign up for the blog, they start getting the regular emails and that's how the, the connection gets built over time as they read these articles and decide like, I, I like this guy. I think this is someone I want to work with. Well, it's really funny because, you know, I'll be playing golf. I I'm an avid golfer. And I'll play golf with, you know, three guys at my local club. And one of them will be like, did you read Ashby's blog this week? And, uh, you know, they're like, oh, he has a blog, you know? (laughs) 
And then they'll say, oh, his, his stuff is great. You should sign up for it. And literally that happens. I don't want to say a lot, but it happens. And so invariably my local group, you know, kind of my local circles are starting to subscribe to it. And, you know, I don't see how that could be anything but a good thing in the long run. Well, I think it's interesting because... And it's a whole lot less pressure than me saying, hey, you should, we should work together. Instead, I'm filtering into their inbox every week. And oh, by the way, I'm probably bringing more to them and their relationship than their per- current advisor is. So it ends up being a really great, a really great tool to... I, I am the worst salesman in the world. So the idea of going and trying to prospect people is you know, my personal version of hell. I don't want to do that. I want people to come work with me because they they want to work with me, period. And so the blog ends up being a really great way for that to kind of create that relationship. Yeah, I I, I heard someone uh, say the other day that like blogging is just networking for introverts. Bingo, hundred percent. Uh, going out and prospecting sounds horrible. Writing writing helpful blog posts and having people share it and come and talk to me like that that feels. Yeah, that feels better, at least for certain writing inclined introverted types, that feels better. Absolutely. And I, you know, I look at it and I'm like, what happens in 10 years when I'm still doing this? Like, who knows? I, I just figure I'll just keep writing and, you know, let, let the pieces fall where they may. So as you, as you look at this, are there things you try to do to turn this into business? I guess I'm just wondering, like, how often are you writing? What are you putting out? How do you get them to actually reach out to you? Like, are you, is there a, a thing you do in your marketing process or just you send them enough stuff and at some point a few of them just start doing their own outreach thing? Like, what are you finding is actually getting you some traction to, to build this into business? Well, the homepage of the site is all about, you know, what we do, how we work. And then uh, I offer what's called a retirement action plan where it's a process that people go through basically where I kind of help to find where they're, where they may or may not be missing the boat in their retirement plan. And the goal is not to bring on every client that goes through that. The goal is just to provide as much value as I can and hope that they see that value and say, look, this is, this is how I work. This is what I do. This is the value that I can bring to your life. And, you know, I find that once people go through that process, it's, I don't want to say it's rare, but it's, it's not very often that they don't say, hey, you're, this is great. Let's, what's the next step? So that's the process of which I follow. And that's all just right on the site. I don't put in any of my blog posts that, I don't put in any of my blog posts to, hey, come work with me ever. They're, the only thing I put on there that is proactive in any way is that I, I do put my mission at the bottom of every post now that says, you know, my mission is to help, you know, help 10 million people make better retirement decisions. And I say, look, if you'd, if you found this to be valuable, I hope you'll consider sharing it. And but that's not that's not me selling my my business. That's not me selling what I do. It's just it's it's that that part is a hundred percent altruistic. I really feel that that's how I'm going to make the difference in people's lives. I mean, I can only serve a hundred people, hundred families. I I can't serve ten million, but I want to make a difference in as many as possible. So talk to us more about what the retirement action plan is, though. Is this like ultimately you? You bring them in for a meeting with you and you and you talk to them about this. Is this like an automated thing on your website? Like, you know, go, go through this 11 point questionnaire and and our, our system will give you an action plan of some things to consider. Like, what are you actually doing with this? Sure. So it's just a process that I go through with 
you know, where I, I, the first, well, first of all, the first call is just to get to know you. And that's what I call it. Literally a, a, a get to know you call where kind of allows them to get to know me, get to know, you know, and me get to know them to see if we're a good fit. And the second meeting is what are they trying to accomplish? I mean, this is not also different from what everybody does. You know, we, they give me all their documents. I completed an analysis. Then we have, you know, a quote strategy discussion where I go through the retirement action plan and I literally create an analysis. So I do a financial plan for them on, you know, where they stand in regards to their retirement goal. We talk about you know, I try to help them visualize what's going to happen with their cash flow, where money is going to be coming from and when through their retirement. And those are just printouts from, by the way, we use Money Guide Pro, which is, you know, so, and then I try to create ways that I can say, hey, here's, we'll address how you might allocate your portfolio to kind of prepare for that cash flow scenario. And then I also try to provide actionable ideas. So that can be on anything from estate planning to, you know, their Medicare to Social Security. And I just give them that printout. And I and I say, look, this is these are my observations as I see them. This is your kind of projections as I see them, you know, and then we we discuss them and they say, you know, at the end of the meeting, I say, what would you like to do? Would you, you know. Would you like to would you like to talk about it? Would you like to work together? Would you like to think it over? The choice is yours. Like I don't ever want to pressure anybody. You know, I think that if it's it's hopefully obvious to them that I would be of an added value to their life. I that's that's plain and simple what I'm trying to achieve. So so I guess so help me understand just the the time of this. So ultimately it sounds like three three meetings like a get to know you call, a follow up of more what are you trying to accomplish and get some data and, and documents, and the third meeting where you're presenting out this retirement action plan. So some some output from Money Guide Pro and some observations and action items of things they could do to improve their financial situation. Is that is that correct? Like that's a sort of a three meeting process. That's exactly right. And so just to understand, like this is this is for clients. This is for prospects. Like this is all still in the, in the prospect phase to, for them to decide whether they want to work with you to implement the action plan that got created. Correct. This is all the prospect process. I do not charge for it. And, you know, I provide them a PDF printout that gets sent through my compliance and just an observations of what's going on in their life. And you know, like I said, my goal is to provide as much value as possible. I'm full disclosure. If they believe they want to, if, if they take it and they want to go implement it on their own, go ahead. That's probably not going to be a client who wants to work with me anyway. So, you know, I just don't worry too much about giving too much information away. I really don't. I mean, if, if they're going to want to work with me, they're going to want to work with me. If they're not, then they're not. It's okay. I don't run into too many people who end up going through the process who want to go take it and do it themselves. So I just don't worry about those people who do. And these are all phone calls? Are these in-person meetings? Is it a combination? Well, pre-COVID, everything, the, the get to know you call is always a call. Beyond that, it's hopefully in person. I mean, most of my clients are local and most of my prospects who come to me are local. So pre-COVID, they're all in person. But, you know, now with COVID, you know, I'm kind of trying to transition over to Zoom. I mean, I did some Zoom meetings before because I have some clients in various states, but not that many. So I was already comfortable on it, but now I'm trying to, uh, I've been forced to, just as we all have, to use to use more technology. And so 
So how long are these various meetings and calls? Well, the first call is 30 minutes. The second, you know, the, the second meeting can be anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. The third meeting, probably an hour. And so cumulatively, like you may be three, four, five hours into just formulating this process with prospects to try to ultimately get them on board. Because like you've got meeting time, you've got prep time, you have to actually make the retirement action plan, get their data in the Money Guide Pro, and and produce some printouts. Uh, like is that a is that a fair characterization or estimate for just the the time it takes for this marketing and sales process? Sure, it's probably five to six hours total. I mean, my assistant does all of the data entry into Money Guide Pro. I don't do yes, yeah, she, she probably gets it to. 80% and then I take it the rest of the 20% to, to get it the rest of the way home. But that's tremendously helpful. And so from there, it's just a matter of me getting it all on paper and sending it through the kind of approval process. But even that's not cumbersome. Raymond James is really good about that stuff. Okay. Okay. And ultimately, this is queued up as a sales process for you. What do you ultimately get paid for them? Like, are you do you charge a follow-on planning fee? Or are you ultimately focusing around an AUM model and managing retirement portfolios for the folks that want to work with you? Are you implementing insurance or other products as well? Like, How does this work from the business model perspective? I am at a hybrid firm where we can do anything and everything. But you know, as I kind of indicated about how I wanted to go to a fee-only firm, I'll tell you that I am 100... Well, I'm not 100. I'm actually 99.6% AUM fee-based. That is okay. where 99.6% of my revenue comes from. And the only reason I have even 0.4 is because I might have grandchild account that has, you know, it's an A share mutual fund because they don't qualify for the, the minimum of a discretionary. Right, right, right. So so I'm basically 100% AUM as, as close as I can get to that. Okay. Okay. And so, and so from a business end, like this works as an outcome if... They have some minimum amount of dollars to then consolidate with you and say, okay, if you want to do the retirement action plan and move forward, like here's how we can work with you. You know, we can manage your retirement portfolio and help you with all this stuff on an ongoing basis. Correct. My stated minimum on my website is a million. My average client, I mean, I have 38 million over 43 clients, so I'm just below the million. And my goal is to be at a million. I still have some some accounts who obviously fall below that, but for the most part, that's that's my goal is to have million million plus families. Interesting, and 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 you're finding just this blogging leading to retirement action plan, leading to three meeting process works for getting them on board at 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 that client level. Absolutely, I, I've I've had, I mean, I've I have plenty of people who want to think it over, and that's perfectly fine. That's uh, that's one of the questions I ask. And which I don't expect anybody to make a lifetime financial advisor decision on the spot. Some do, some don't, and that's all okay. Okay. Do you ever think about like charging planning fees and setting a fee for that portion? Just wondering, like there's so much discussion out there of charging separate planning fees, not charging separate planning fees. Uh, You've obviously put some deliberate thought into this structure and how you built it. So do you do you think about planning fees? Do you just not worry about it because these are becoming good million dollar clients anyways? If I found that a lot of my people who go through that process weren't coming on board, I would think that's a personal problem, not not a product of not charging enough. <laughs> so to me, I think the numbers work out just fine. And you know, like I said- right, I mean, if you're, 
if you're getting clients who pay you an average of almost $10,000 a year, like on an ongoing basis as annually recurring clients, like a few thousand dollar planning fee while a good dollar amount for your time is probably not the make or break for the business at that point. It's, it's the million dollar clients. No, exactly. My, you know, my fees are, are enough to where I don't really have to worry about, I'm not worried about optimizing every dollar, every hour. I'm just trying to get people who I think are going to be long-term lifelong clients and then really do as good of a job as I can do serving them. And hopefully they stay on forever. In which case, you know, the lifetime value is worth far more than I could ever charge doing a planning fee to get them on board. And of the clients that are coming on board, like is is the primary sales and new client process for you now? Like people literally come to the blog and website and click this button to get your retirement action plan and get going? Or are you still driving from local networking or referrals or other activities as well? Like how, how much of the how much of these retirement action plan clients are actually coming from the blog activity versus whatever else you may be doing for marketing? There's some people who have come from the blog, but not not a lot yet. What they're coming from is basically my local market. And I you know, I recently wrote a book and a lot of that has been that has gotten shared around locally a lot. I'm thankful for that. And so that has been you know, somebody finds out you do that and for whatever reason, they tend to be more interested and then they'll find the blog. And then it's been, so it's, it's mainly the local, it's, it's still mainly currently the local market where people who know me or have some level of relationship with me have said, Hey, you know, I'm getting ready to retire. You know, I, my advisor is either probably about my age or I'm not sure he knows as much as you do about what you do, you know, can we just have a discussion? And so we'll do the get to know you call basically and figure out what, what it is that they're trying to accomplish. And we just take it one step at a time. Yes, I'm, I'm struck that you've talked a lot about how clients are, are sourcing for your local market, but then almost any, every conversation comes like, and then eventually they go to my website and then they sign up for my blog and then they're getting it. So like it's, it, it strikes me like, your blog seems to play a very central role in your marketing, but not as a lot of people talk about blogging of, you know, get your blog out there and the world will find you on Google. It's, it's more of like it's, it's in the middle of your marketing process after they meet you locally. It's not at the start of your marketing process and how they find you. The blog is an introvert's dream. And that is, that is how I approach it. I mean, I'm just trying to get people to start reading what I write. I don't ever, you know, promote myself. I probably promote myself way less than I ever should, but that just doesn't come natural to me. So, but I don't mind talking about what I've written before and people surely don't mind sharing what I've written. So to me, that that's tends to be where I try to get people. I would rather them start there to be honest with you, because it gives people a perspective of what it is that I do and what it is that I don't do. So it actually ends up shortening conversations because like nobody's coming to me to try to pick the best mutual funds. Nobody's coming to me to try to time the market because if you read my blog, I don't do that. And so I the think blog the, filters out people who are a bad fit because they're they're just not going to keep reading for your stuff if they're not into you. Correct. So it ends up being a place they go anyway. Interesting. And and how often are you writing? Like how how often do you publish content? How long is it? It can be anywhere from always once a week, a lot of times twice a week. 
but that's about it. I don't know how you maintain the level of volume that you do. <laughs> but once or twice a week, I publish a post. Most of them, they used to be very long. I adopted the Kitsis way of life for a while and, and wrote, you know, two to 4,000 word pieces. And just through the sheer you know, evolution of what I write about and as my practice has evolved and what I think that... So the other piece that gets overlooked is how valuable the blog is to my existing clients. And keeping my thoughts on what's going on in front of existing clients, because almost all of my existing clients subscribe to the blog. So they're reading what I'm thinking on a regular basis, which is immensely helpful. I get a lot of calls that say, I'm just so glad that you do this. And so they've gotten a lot shorter is where I'm going with it. So they now may be anywhere from that, probably a thousand words or less. And that's not by design. It's just, you know, they say that I didn't, you know, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short one. So, you know, I've really tried to condense what it is that I'm writing into the salient points. And that's, that's the route that I've gone recently. And that's just because I'm writing the things that hit me, but they always hit me every week because I make sure that I get something out. It's not, I'm not waiting for something to hit me per se. I'm always, I have just like you, I have a, I use one note. I have a one note, you know, notebook of a, of probably 300 ideas that I could just write about right now. And, and where do ideas come from for you? Because I know that's a blocking point for a lot of advisors. Where don't they come from? <laughs> I mean, if you're looking for ideas, you can go to a retirement, go to Boggleheads and look at the questions being asked. It's, you know, you can, I mean, I, I get them from talking to clients. I read, I probably read eight to 10 blogs. That's about it. I don't really read a lot more, but they tend to be blogs who have similar viewpoints on how I view the world from a from an investing standpoint. So I, I take ideas from that and turn it into my own thoughts and feelings and try to write it in a condensed format that makes sense for retirees. And what are your like what are your blogs of choice that you read to to get inspiration? Are there are there some in particular that have become go to's for you? Well by far my favorite resource is Nick Murray. I, I'm a subscriber to his newsletter, which I think is the best $275 I spend every year. Uh, he's just probably my favorite person to read about. So I read, I read everything he writes. I read everything that he links to and says I should read. I read uh, the first trust blog with Brian Westbury. I read, uh, what is it? Uh, hold on. Uh, Ryan Kruger writes a lot of great stuff with Kruger and Catalano. Califia Beach Pundit, which is Scott Granis. Ed Yardini, Bill Miller from Miller Value Partners. So those are probably the primaries that I read, but I also read, you know, a lot of the Ritholtz guys. I read, those are probably the, those are probably the, the primaries. And, and all just for finding whatever inspiration you're going to find. Yeah. It's a, it's a matter of me finding, you know, you've experienced this, no doubt where you see just a turn of phrase is like, oh my gosh, that's so good. It sparks just the right thought you need. And then you can just pound out a thousand words. That happens all the time. I mean, once, you know, when you write a lot, it doesn't take much to be inspired to write more. And so that's, that's kind of been my experience. I I think that the people who always wonder what they're going to write about, sometimes you just need to start writing. And then you'll, I have more ideas than I could write about in two years right now. And invariably I'll write 10% of those because I come up with others in the interim. 
So how how long does it take you to do the, your writing process now for these one or two a week? Like, is this an hour or two? Is this a half a day? Is this like a day a week that that gets consumed with writing? I'm a terribly slow writer. It probably averages out to between six to eight hours total to get probably two articles out. Sometimes it's six to eight hours to get one out. But it's because I'm my goal is to is always to write one crappy version first, and then I just try to edit it and make it sound better. As opposed to trying to perfect it when you write it, like just get the words out once, it can be crappy, then take a second pass and tighten it up. Exactly. And that's how I write everything. Don't put too much pressure on myself to, to feel any other way. And so just, you know, in the aggregate, that's a big old chunk of time. I mean, you're talking about essentially 20, 20% of a work week. So I, I, how do you manage that? time like how do you, how do you find or set aside or manage the time to be able to to do that much writing work it's a combination i mean i one of the things that i do is you know my journey to be as effective effective and efficient with my time is you know been it was a real frustration point for me for a lot of years where i tried all the traditional kind of time management techniques where you have a paper calendar and you write down what your day is going to look like. Well, within two hours of my day starting, I'm already off schedule because I'm notoriously poor at estimating how long something is going to take. So that always failed, almost always. So over time, what I started to do was I read the book Essentialism, which if nobody's read that book, I know that a lot of people have, but if, if you haven't read that book, I would say it was, it was relatively life-changing for me. And I found that, you know, I would, what that kind of book concentrates on is is what you're doing essential. And I don't know, it does not say to do this in the book, but this is what, that book is what inspired this thought. That's why I share the book. But what I tried to do is I started doing two things. I started to separate my day into just two sections. One for working in the business and one for working on the business. And this is every day, except for during client appointment months, which I, I kind of follow the, you know, kind of the, the surge meetings as much as I can. Uh, so probably 80% of my meetings happen in March and October. And the rest of my year where, so during client months, I'm just, just trying to serve clients and make sure I get everything done there. I'm not really not concerned about doing, following this process, but the rest of the year, I separate my day into two sections, the working on the business and working in the business. So generally speaking, my morning is always working in the business. So I'm, I'm making sure all my emails are taken care of. I have a to-do list. I fill out a productivity sheet every day and I write down my goals. I write down what my big block schedules are. So like the morning is always finish my to-do list, which is whatever needs to be done that day. You know, whether you use your CRM to track that or whatever, I make sure those all get done. And then once my morning is done, I've done all the trades I need to do. I've managed, you know, I've talked to the clients I need to talk to. I've gotten all that stuff out of my way. The afternoon, generally after lunch, I work on the business. So I'm doing marketing, I'm writing blogs, I'm doing other things, working on projects that will hopefully move the needle in the long run, whether that's writing a book or whether that's on doing, writing a white paper. Like I did a new lead gen, you know, for my email list. So I wrote a white paper. So anything that I think might move the needle for me in the long run, I work on in the afternoon. And I try to really shut down, shut out what what happened in the morning 
so that I can do the stuff in the afternoon. And I, most people would tell you to do the reverse of that. But what it is, is if I tried to work on the business in the morning, I would not be able to concentrate because if I haven't done the things I know need to happen for my clients, who by the way, are the people who are paying me, then I don't have any business doing the other stuff. That's just, so I could not clear my head if I tried to do the reverse. So I try to make sure my clients are first and foremost, that I take care of the stuff that needs to be taken care of. And then I can jump into doing the things that I think will move the needle for, for me in the long run in the afternoons. And, and you mentioned a productivity sheet as well of like goals. And I think you said big block schedule. So can you talk a little bit more about just what this, what this productivity sheet is that you're, you're completing every day? Yeah, it's the, it is a, so the worksheet encompasses, it has, I guess, five different sections as I sit here and look at it. It has the schedule for the day, which is, you know, just a a regular looking calendar. I write down my goals every morning. It's the first thing I do when I wake up, when I do my daily reading, journaling, and all that stuff. Then I write down what the items are for the day that are going to quote, move the needle. So what are the, what are the projects I'm going to work on that day, whether it's writing a blog post or whatever that needs to get done. I write that section down. Then I have a, what's what I call a get to do list because a to do list is negative. A get to do list is positive. So I have my get to do list. And then I so have like, what do I, what do I get to do today that I've been wanting and meaning to work on? Now I get to do it. Okay. Exactly. So it's like, it just makes me think of it differently. That's got a tag, maybe stupid, but I, it works for me. And then I have what's called, I, this is probably really important. I use something that's called this month's focus where the end of each month, I look at the following month and I say, all right, what is my big project? And I have an ongoing project list for my, my practice, whether that is, you know, creating the retirement action plan process or whether that is updating, maybe I need to change my investment policy statements, or maybe I want to create a white paper for my email lead generation or whatever. Each month starts with a focus. And I cannot do any other projects that come across my radar until that project is done. Because what I would end up happening is I would work on one for a little bit, then I'd work on another, then I'd work on another, then I'd work on another, and none of them would ever get done. So by kind of focusing on the project that in theory should move the needle the most, I end up with, I end up accomplishing far more because I'm actually checking things off the list. And once that's done, I can move on to something else until the next month and I can work on any others I can knock out on my project list until the next month. And then the next month I pick the one that's going to, you know, make the biggest impact. And I focus that goes on this month's focus every time. So that's kind of the worksheet. I, and I fill it out every day. And, and where did this come from? Like, is this a, a thing you built for yourself over time? Is this something you, you found from some productivity system and, uh, and ran with it? It's a combination. I mean, I had always done writing down my daily schedule. I tried to always do that in analog form. I th- and I think it's important that it is an analog form because what would happen if this is all electronic, you get distracted and doing something else versus if I just look at a sheet of paper, the sheet of paper is not going to force me to do anything else. I just write on it. So I always had a daily schedule. I always wrote down my goals. The other three are kind of come from a combination of people Uh, One is Donald Miller has a productivity sheet that I ended up taking a little bit off of. Jack Butcher, I know, has one, which amazingly, the one that he has looks a lot like mine. And that was not, I did not copy his. I added the cell phone thing to my list, which I never fill out, actually, as it turns out. But 
that came from his. So there's one aspect from my list that looks just like his, but his looks just and like what's the mine. what's the cell phone thing? It so like in reviewing my hours, did I how much time did I spend looking at my cell phone? Basically distracted. Oh. So if I did, if I didn't look at my cell phone, that's a good thing. I checked the box. If it's if I spent time looking at my cell, it's I, I exit off because I screwed it up. That's not a phone calls thing. That's a, like everything else we do on our cell phone that probably was not the most productive thing to do. That's exactly right. But I, I never, I, th- I put it on there because it was on Jack Butcher's and I thought that was a great idea. And I can tell you, I never fill it out, but it's on there. I, interesting. Out of curiosity, are you, are you, are you willing to share this for folks that, uh, that want to check it out and see it? I'd be more than happy to share it. Absolutely. All right. Awesome. I appreciate that. So for, for those who are listening, this is episode 197. So if you just go to kitsis.com slash 197, uh, we'll have a link out for, for Ashby's productivity sheet. So so Ashby, as you kind of look at this process and journey of, of building the firm, what surprised you the most about trying to build your own business, as, particularly as you transitioned and went out on your own? I think that sometimes freedom can be a nightmare. Having to kind of chart your own course can be very, very difficult sometimes. And I'm really glad that I started with the firm that I did because it gave me 10 years to figure this thing out so that by the time I did start my own, as in, in a matter of speaking, by the time I decided to do this again, I had a really good feeling for what I wanted to do. But at the same time, having that freedom, had I had all of this freedom from day one, I probably would not have made it in the business. But it came to me at the right time. And so that probably would have surprised me more than anything else. So the the sort of this aspect of early on the structure of the business can act the structure of big firms in our industry can actually be really helpful for creating the structure you need. But then at some point you may find like, okay, now that I've lived in that structure for three or five or seven or 10 years, I think I've actually figured out the stuff that I really want to do and focus on. And so now I would like to shift and and create that thing in my own vision and have a little more freedom now that I totally would not have been good with early on. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of these firms can get a bad, bad rap from advisors. They clearly have a perfectly fine reputation with the general public. Otherwise, they wouldn't have managed so many assets. But you know, from an advisor perspective, they get a bad rap. But I'll tell you, I wouldn't have made it if I didn't start where I did. So, you know, to me, it's not always bad to start at one of those places. And then you figure it out as you go along. Just keep your eyes and ears open. And, you know, you never know what may come come your way. So what was the low point for you on this career journey? So I knew you were going to ask me that. But what's funny is, because I've obviously listened to all of your podcasts, but it was. It is such an obvious answer to me, and that is the week I left my old firm, and not because I thought it was a bad decision, but because I left everything I had known. I left a really great business from a you know from a family income perspective, but I frankly freaked out a little bit when I left. So if this is you know if this is somebody who's considering doing this, just kind of be prepared for that because. I I am not somebody who freaks out at all. I am a very even-keeled person. But I was very, I don't want to say very worried, very concerned, very stressed that what if no clients 
call me. What if, what if this was a huge mistake? And that, that feeling was very evident in my life for only for a couple of weeks, but it was there and it was strong. But, you know, once I got started and got my first client calls, I felt much better. Well, and I would imagine it's, it's, it just gets amplified further when you've got this mandatory garden leave blackout period. Like, Hey, in, in, in case you, you know, in case you wanted to distract yourself while you've left your job and are getting ready for what comes next, you pretty much can't do anything to distract yourself. You just got to sit there doing nothing, dwelling on it for 29, 28, 7, 27 more days while you count down the the calendar just to get to the point where you can turn the lights back on as they were and find out whether anyone's going to start showing up. I, I just, I have to imagine the, the mandatory pause there did, did not exactly help the anxiety of the situation. It absolutely didn't. But I'll tell you this to, you know, whoever's listening out there that this is hitting them square where they need to be hit is that month really, you know, pardon the phrase, but really sucked. And it was not a fun time in my life. But I will say this, that, and full disclosure, I am, I am at current making less than I made before I left. But I am infinitely happier. I am excited on Monday morning to go to work. I was not excited on Monday morning to go to work for a while. And so, you know, I just want to put that out there because I think that that is something that I think it's overlooked a lot is that they expect that you leave it all's roses. Well, it may not be, but that doesn't make it bad. And like, you're going to have those feelings where it, you question your decision. Did you make the right decision? You know, how's your, how, how is this going to work out? And if you do things the right way, I'm confident it'll work out for the better. And so I guess I'm just curious, like what, what's the difference that's making you so much happier since it's, it's not the lift in, in income and career growth, at least so far, although you're, you said you're like, you did want to build a thing that you can own. So you, you've got some of that, but like income's not even where it was two or three years ago, but you, as you said, you're infinitely happier. So what's, what's, what's the different thing that's making you so much happier? Well, for one, yeah, you know, we lived well below our means even before. So like, all of our, everything's being met. Like I'm not, you know, from a financial perspective, I don't have any worries anymore. But at the same time, Monday morning when I come into the office, I'm working for Ashby and his family and the families that I serve. I'm not, I mean, I work for Shorebridge. Shorebridge is a phenomenal, phenomenal firm and love it here. But I'm coming in and I'm building something for me. I'm not, I'm not trying to build anything for anybody else. I get the experience of working with I mean, one of the great things was, you know, when I, I went from say 200, 200, let's say, say 200 clients, I have 43 who I, whom I love to work with. <laughs> I mean, so every phone call I get, I'm like, all right, I'm excited to talk to this person. Like, that's a pretty great thing. And so, you know, I'm being very selective on even people who come in still because I don't want to ruin that. And so my feeling towards being infinitely happier is just that I come in, I'm, I'm literally just trying to do the things that I want to do and, you know, enjoying trying to figure out how to make this thing a little bit better every day. Well, I, th- I think there's a real power in, in just what comes when, you know, I think as, as anybody who's lived in a firm where 
you have to work with the clients of the firm because they're the clients of the firm and you work with them and that's your gig. You know, there is an amazing freedom that comes from, you know what, I actually don't need to work with the clients that I don't want to work with anymore. Like I get to make that call. It's a, it's a powerful thing if you've never gotten to, never gotten to make that decision and suddenly get to and have had any number of clients you really didn't like working with, which most of us get at some point or another. Absolutely. That's hard to overstate that. So looking back, is there anything you wish you'd done differently in in this journey? I guess I'm either in in building where you built originally or in making the transition to where you made the transition to. Like anything you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from five years ago? The common answer would be that no, I wouldn't change anything because then I wouldn't be where I am today. But I wish I would have educated myself really early on on what exists in the world of financial services. I mean, we work in the greatest business in the world and we get to make, we get to impact client lives and that's a pretty great thing. And, but a lot of these firms do insulate their people. And I don't think that's necessarily bad. That's an obvious thing. Like, why wouldn't they do that? But at the same time, I wish I would have done myself. I wish I would have educated myself a little bit more in terms of what exists out in the world and help understand, get a better understanding of how the financial services works outside of where I was. I mean, I still am learning that. I mean, I'm still continually surprised that I'm in year 12. So that, that's probably about it. So maybe that dovetails into the next question as well, but what what advice would you give newer advisors coming into the industry today to get get going on a good foot? Read the Michael Kitsis blog. Well, hopefully they're doing that already since they're, they're hearing <laughs> they're here, through they're the here. podcast as well. That's true. That was a bad idea. Then. Oh, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> I think just, you know, read from people who aren't in your sphere. I mean, part of the reason I read all the things that I read is because they don't, they don't come from the same, they don't have the same experiences that I have. They don't, you know, like they, they work and play in a different world than I play in. And so the fact that it took me until 2016 to really experiment and look outside of what my firm had to offer, not in terms of leaving or not leaving, but in terms of looking for expertise outside of my own firm, what would be a game changer for not only in terms of being more educated in what the industry has to offer, but being more educated in client planning issues. Like, in every which way, I feel like people would be better served if they would read outside of what their firm publishes. So what comes next for you? Well, I mean, my goal is to get, you know, I'd love, I'd love to serve a hundred client families. You know, I have a book, you know, a series of books I'm trying to write, uh, which is a whole other topic, but uh, I'm trying to write those. Are these, are these book like creative fiction books outside of the industry or things books in the industry tied to the business. <laughs> if only I was creative enough to write fiction. Now there are just books on little books on retirees for retirees that that I'm trying to I'm trying to write a series of 6 to 10 of them. Say 6 to 10 that seems like a big num- a big number of possibilities, but I've already written one. I've I just finished the draft first draft of number 2 and I'm trying to get trying to get those out and I would really like for those to become helpful to the retirement community. And it, and what's the what's the purpose of them? Like you're already writing a blog, so is this like 
another channel? Is this re repurposing the blog posts? Is this like a, a money thing in of itself to do book sales? Is this like books to get clients? Like what's the, what's the angle or what's the path for you? Well, two things. One is, you know, the, it's a way I can make a difference in the lives of people who are probably do it yourselfers who would never work with me. So if I can, you know, the book, the, the first book I wrote is Medicare Simplified. It's just a book on Medicare. Like I don't sell Medicare. I don't do anything with Medicare outside of try to help people make sense of it. But the goal is to, you know, kind of get people to 98% of what they need to know in less than two hours of reading. So the book is less than a hundred pages. All my series will be less than a hundred page books. You know, much like you wrote your annuity book, Michael, you know, I'm trying to write very, very uh, succinct series of books where it helps the DIYers. But, you know, I would, I'm not saying it's totally altruistic because part of the purpose of writing the books is to create, you know, an additional stream of income that, that I can hopefully cr- turn into something. And that's kind of the, From just the, the, the revenue of book sales in and of itself. What it, can I ask? I mean, just like, what, what are you selling the books for? Like, I'm just in relative to having a, a an advisory firm with tens of millions of dollars under management and just what, what we charge in the industry is as advisors, like, what are you selling the books for? What are you envisioning you can charge for them to, to, to have this be a, a, an income contributor? So the, the books sell for the paperback sells for 1199, the Kindle for 499. I think I make, depending on which type you buy between $3 and 50 cents or $5 a book. And you know, thus far the book, the, the first one's only been out for two or three months. And I think I've probably cleared $2,000 on, on the first book. One or $2,000 a month with some momentum ain't, ain't, ain't bad for right at once and let Amazon keep selling it for you. Well, what's funny is I started to write the, you know, the 300 page retirement book and decided that that was not what I wanted because I didn't think that's what retirees would read. I really tried to create a useful guide for retirees. And why I started with Medicare was just because that's what I had already written the most on. <laughs> Not because I was dying to write a book on Medicare. But the goal is literally to create a side income that that I can use to, you know, just provide income, but also to really make a difference. I mean, and if I, you know, if I have a client who is coming up on Medicare, well, I send all the I send a copy of my book to every existing client, but if and then some. But if I have somebody who comes in and says, hey, I need to know something about Medicare. I'm like, hey, I got you covered. This is, you know, I literally wrote the book on it. So it's an easy way to do that. And and how did you bring this together? Like, did you just use the resources of the internet to figure out how to self-publish a book on Amazon? Or did you work with some service or, or provider to help get this set up? Google is an amazing tool. I figured out how to do it all. I have an, you know, as a, just for whoever is an aspiring writer out there, I have an, I have uh, an entire $160 into my book. Everything else is, is profit at this point outside of my time. It is a very time expensive, unless you type 200 words a minute, like you do. It is a very time expensive thing to do, but you know, it's very rewarding too, in terms of getting that information out there. And I think a succinct way. I mean, but I learned how to self-publish on Amazon just by Googling it, figuring it out. And I had somebody, I, I paid somebody on Fiverr to format the book and I paid uh, somebody on Fiverr to create a book cover. Those are the only two expenses I had. As far as editing goes, I'm lucky. My mom is an English teacher. 
uh, and was willing to edit it free of charge. So thanks, mom. But outside of that, there were there were no other costs outside of those two Fiverr expenses. And like I said, it's it's gone it's gone pretty well. But the goal is to to come back to your initial question. The goal is to write a series of those that I really do. I mean, yes, there is a profit motive. I I don't want to say there's not, but it really is an altruistic, moderately as altruistic as you can be with also a profit motive to really just put out good information. Like like I said, I can only I'm only I can only serve a hundred client families. Like, but if I can make a difference in the lives of more more people who are looking for good quality information, then then the blog fits that, the books fit that, you know, who knows what's in the future, whether it's YouTube or, you know, a podcast or what have you. Like, I just am trying to move that needle in terms of helping people make better decisions. And if I achieve that, however I achieve that, I feel like is a step in the right direction. So on that theme is, as we wrap up, you know, this is a podcast about success. And one of the themes that always comes up is just the word success means such different things to different people. And so you're you're on this you know, incredible success trajectory with the business and having gone out on your own and starting over and rebuilding so quickly and and moving forward. How do you define success for yourself at this point? You know, if I'm being if I'm being, you know, very transparent, I I feel pretty successful already in the sense that, you know, from a life perspective, it's am can do my kids look at me and say I'm a good dad? Does Beth my wife look at me and say I'm a good husband? But outside of that, you know, from a business perspective, which is what probably what far more people are interested in, it's can I do, you know, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast. Can I can I do the things I want to do and only the things I want to do? And what kind of balance does my business offer me that allows me to fulfill those life goals? And you know, if I'm not there already, I'm getting pretty close, but I think that as long as I can continue to do the things that I want to do when I want to do them and you know, allows me to be at home and fulfill those life goals. That's really what I'm striving for is above all else. And hopefully those two things can kind of dovetail together. I love it. I love it. Well, and I just, I love the framing of, can I, can I do the things I want to do and, and only the things I want to do? And, and uh, adding the second part of that is, I think, particularly powerful in thinking about how much control and autonomy do you do you have over your your business and your life? How much do you want? You do you know what you want that to look like? Because I think, as you said early on, too much freedom early on actually can make it harder or be overwhelming. But at some point, as as I think, just as people, as we grow and figure out what are the things we want to do that we're good at, and and can we narrow it down to just focusing our time there? It it's it's pretty powerful when you hit that moment. Absolutely, and and I just want to. Put this out there to your audience. If you're an advisor who fits the mold of what I was describing, if you just want to have a discussion on what it's like on the, not on the other side, there's plenty of people willing to tell that story, but what it's like going through the transition and what kind of you can expect, feel free to reach out. I'm certainly happy to happy to contribute in that way. Awesome. I, I appreciate that, Ashby. So we'll have links out for Ashby as well. If you're listening, you want to reach out to him through LinkedIn or through his firm's website. Again, kitsis.com slash 197 for episode 197. And we'll have the links out there. But thank you so much, Ashby, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It really is my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michael. I love everything you do. Thank you so much for having me. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? 
check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.